Welcome to a special presentation of Nebraska Farmcast, a podcast with essential information for essential decisions from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The Nebraska Extension Farm and Ranch Management Team in the Department of Agricultural Economics is dedicated to providing timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications for Nebraska agricultural decision makers. Each week, our team brings you essential information for your essential decisions in live webinars covering a diverse array of farm and ranch management topics presented by experts from the university, from across the state, and from around the country. This series of podcasts offers audio from these webinars so you can learn on the go. To find a complete archive of all webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more resources, visit the Farm and Ranch Management website at farm.unl.edu. I'm T.L. Meyer, a beef extension educator for Blaine, Cherry, Grant, Hooker, and Thomas Counties. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is a part of a series of webinars produced by the Extension Farm and Ranch Management Team that typically runs every Thursday at noon. You can find recordings of these sessions, a schedule of the upcoming webinars, and other resources at farm.unl.edu. One resource that we would like to quickly highlight is the Nebraska Rural Response Hotline. In times of stress, knowing when to reach out is essential. The Nebraska Rural Response Hotline can provide mental health counseling, information regarding legal assistance, financial clinics, mediation, and more. The hotline's toll-free number is 1-800-464-0258 and in addition, a wealth of resources related to stress and wellness can be found at ruralwellness.unl.edu. During today's presentation, please use the chat box or Q&A located on the bottom of your screen to ask questions. We will address those at the end of the presentation as time allows. Today's webinar will discuss the factors going into cow-calf producer decisions on whether to retain cattle to the feedlots or keep cattle for backgrounding. Presenting from the Department of Agricultural Economics, we have Elliot Dennis, Assistant Professor of Livestock Marketing, and Jay Parsons, Professor and Farm and Ranch Management Specialist. Elliot and Jay, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, TL. I'll go ahead and, uh, and share my screen with where uh, can I get going. Yeah, so uh, this uh, kind of the topic of this webinar really began about five or six weeks ago when uh, we were talking about what is, there's been a lot of volatility in the market in the feedlot sector and even some in the packing industry. Um, and we, we know that some of that volatility is going to be passed down ultimately to the cow-calf producer. And so we wanted to briefly talk about what is the market looking like? What situations are, is the market willing to pay to put on weight today? And what are some situations where it's not, the market's not willing to pay to put on that weight to kind of help better make us um, more informed and ultimately make, uh, hopefully be more profitable in the future. Um, do want to note some of our support with the North Central Risk Management Extension, uh, which is helping uh, kind of fund this webinar today. So let's just talk about some of the decisions to be made. I, I like this uh, figure that Cattlefax put together just because I feel like it really just puts it out in a very kind of graphical way where we can, we can see what those decisions are. So we got this 550 pound calf and really we have three decisions to make uh, coming into this fall. We can choose to winter them and sell them in, in April. We can choose to precondition them and sell them in November. Um, or we can choose to background them and sell them in January. And there's a lot of variability in there, but most of the decisions are probably going to fall within those three buckets. Um, and then just kind of how that progresses all the way to, a, you know, a finished fed cattle. And really as we're, no matter which one of these decisions we make, uh, we need to also be thinking about the market's willing to pay that today but what are we doing to try to ensure that we can maintain to have that price? Um, and so one of the ways that we can do this is kind of going through this flow diagram 
um, and saying, okay, where is the market looking like? And it can really help us figure out which tool to use. So for example, if we're pretty sure what the market outlook is gonna, uh, pretty certain about what the market is gonna be, and we feel like the market's gonna move higher, then we would just say, hey, we're just gonna sell in the cash market and don't use any risk management protection. So right now, there's probably a lot of uncertainty about what that market is gonna look like. And we feel like there's probably gonna be some, um, right now the volatility is pretty low. And so looking at maybe LRP, um, however, if we start to experience a bit more volatility in the markets than something like a synthetic put or just a regular put. Um, and Jay will go over a little bit about LRP and also kind of puts um, and how we can incorporate that into our marketing plan. So when, I, when we talk to people, I just really wanna separate out between when we're talking about when to pull the trigger. So these are the market conditions and what triggers to pull. So when we're talking about when to pull the trigger, we're talking about is the market willing to pay? And then when we're talking about what triggers to pull, we're talking about you know, risk management and, and how to make those decisions. I'll primarily be going over when to pull the trigger and then Jay will go a little bit more over what triggers to actually pull when the market's willing to offer something. So let's just talk about what are the market trends right now and what are the conditions in, in the market. Um, one, one of the tools that we have in order to help us make kind of a, a projection on what the market is gonna be like in the, in the futures is the futures market and the futures contracts that are traded um, at, at the CME, this Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And so what I, what I did here was saying, okay, given that there is these, we're just coming out of a, um, or probably still on the tail end of a La Nina event, um, what was the price in September? And assuming that we're gonna be backgrounding and selling in uh, at the end of January, what was the futures price at the end? And really what we see is that generally in September, there's a lot of uncertainty in the futures market on who's gonna retain animals and who's not gonna retain animals. And so what we see is that actually most of the appreciation in, this, in the January feeder cattle contract happens between September and October. So uh, to give an example, in um, the January 2018 feeder cattle contract, that's the blue line, about, um, seven and a half percent, the market increased seven and a half percent by the end of October from September prices. And so when we're talking about maybe locking in a price or we're talking about putting in some risk management, knowing that most of that appreciation in the market is gonna happen within the next 30 days or the next 20, you know, next 20, 25 trading days. And so really being having that plan out and what the risk management is gonna look like. This is for the January feeder cattle contract. So let's just look at that, that situation, right? Okay, so let's just put out an example. It's September 1st, I did this about a day or two ago. Say our operations in Ogallala, um, and we're really trying to decide, do we wanna retain and add weight, or do we just wanna sell in the, in the cash market today? Um, and really we're just making the assumption that we wanna make money. We're not worried about, you know, balancing taxes or we're not worrying about balancing, you know, production and feed, but we just wanna, we have the available feed resources. Um, so let's just evaluate first the market and then talk about what to protect. So we can always do this in one way that we can figure out uh, if the market's willing to pay is just look at the, what's called the value of gain. And really if the value of gain is greater than what it costs us to put on, that's essentially meaning the market's willing to pay you more than what it costs you. And so the opportunity would be there to uh, potentially be profitable. Um, so let's just say you're, you're trying to decide whether you're gonna retain the 550 pound steer. Uh, you're eventually gonna wanna try to sell that um, sometime in, in April. Um, you're putting on 175 pounds over 225 days. Average daily gain is about, you know, 80 cent or sorry, about 8.8 um, .8 pounds per day. So the market is right now is willing to pay 121.57 per hundred weight. 
And so when we look at that is, you know, is that good or is that bad? Well, it really depends on what is our cost of gain and what is our attitude towards risk? And Jay will go over a little bit about how our attitudes towards risk really affect how we look at that number. Um, I like to put this up because sometimes it helps us saying that sometimes the market's willing to pay us to speed up cattle and sometimes the market's willing to pay us to slow down cattle. And that can really affect what that value of gain is. Um, the example that I, I like to use is um, when you're going to book a flight, you can say how flexible are on your flight dates and you can look three days before, three days after. And so you can really say, okay, if I'm flexible and I want to move up my, my travel, maybe I can get a better deal or sometimes I can delay my travel. The same principle we can look at here by looking at flexible dates. And so really when we're, what we're looking at is, okay, what can I do to try to capture the market right now? And so this was what I showed you right here, April 14th. That's at 0.78 pounds per day. For steers, the market's willing to pay you 121.57, which per hundred weight, which we went over. But, you know, if we slow down the cattle a little bit, you know, we, you know, basically almost another month. Right now, the market's actually paying, willing to pay you $7 more per hundred weight just to slow down the steer cattle a little bit more. Same principle could be could be said for heifers, but it's actually, in fact, a little bit, the market's willing to pay you a little bit more. Notice that it always doesn't pay just to speed up cattle and put on the weight faster. Look at March 16th, you're actually, you would get $4 less per hundred weight to speed up cattle and get that, that gain going higher. So really when we're talking about performance, it's really trying to balance cattle performance um, and where and market timing. So finding ways to either slow down cattle or speed up cattle a little bit to hit kind of marketing opportunities depending upon steers or heifers. So that's what a wintering situation is currently looking like as of this week. So you know we can we can look at kind of the backgrounding we can look at that same appreciation um, that happens there you know really by the end of November, um, that wintering situation, um, all of that, you know, appreciation in the uh, in the futures price has pretty much been absorbed by the, you know, by the middle to the end of November, and so putting in that risk management decision really needs probably needs to come before before that day. So let's just talk about backgrounding now. So same situation. Right here, we're sitting. Do we want to sell in January? We're trying to say, should we put on weight? So once we're just going to walk through the value of gain situations again. Same situation. We have a 550 pound steer. We want to sell it as 800 pound steer. We're going to put on the weight on the average daily gain about 1.77. So here, what we look at is 96 dollars per hundred weight. So a little bit less. So currently the market is willing to pay you to delay the cattle to come on uh, and put on the weight than just kind of really ramming them through the system right now. Um, it gives you an example that, you know, most of that cost of production might probably is going to be if we're on a winter wheat pasture or something that like that might be 90 cents. Um, uh, but per hunt or 90 cents per pound on, on the cost of gain. But really the market is not paying dramatically for a backgrounding situation to retain cattle all the way and sell them in January. More of the market's willing to pay right now is delay some of that, situ that weight gain and sell them in kind of the April, May. And largely that probably has, largely ha probably has to do with kind of the situation with um, some of the packing plants, some, some of the worry about, you know, if there is another potential government shutdown or uh, they start to lock down a little bit more, um, some of that beef won't be able to be processed quite as much as quickly and there won't be as a need for it as much. And so some of that's being priced into the market right now. So right now, market's not really paying to uh, put on weight quickly and more of a delayed weight. Um, delayed gain on the weight. 
and how that so even though the market's offering right that that today really ensuring that we're using appropriate risk management so that we can ensure that we're going to actually receive that price at delivery um and jay's going to talk us a little bit through about how we can make sure that that can happen Yeah, so thank, thanks, Elliot. Uh, um, so now let's look at what, what it is that you, uh, I guess the triggers that you have as, as you make this retention decision and uh, try to decide, A, if you're going to retain or not, and B, how you're going to feed them, as uh, Elliot alluded to, whether you want to push them through the system quickly or uh, delay that a little bit. Let's see, am I working here, Elliot? I'm not sure if I got control. There we go. <laughs> okay, so Elliot mentioned the, the importance of your attitude towards risk. Um, and so let's talk about that just here for a second to begin with, um, with the um, idea that risk, uh, some people are a little more risk loving than others. And um, so they'll uh, be more willing to take chances and whatnot. And, uh, and they're, the main thing to understand is, is that that's not constant. Um, it, it changes through time and it also changes with the situation that you're actually dealing with. Um, and so in particular, as it's pertinent here to this retention decision, a lot of it's gonna have to do with your financial situation and uh, what your margin for error is uh, with that financial situation. So uh, the tendency is, as your margin for error goes up, your willingness to take risks or also goes up. And as your margin for error goes down, your willingness to take risk also goes down. And that has a lot of different connotations to it. An example I like to use is, uh, is buying a lottery ticket, right? Technically speaking, anybody who buys a lottery ticket is risk loving because the payback on a lottery ticket is usually only about 50%. So if you pay a dollar for a lottery ticket and expect to get 50 cents back, well, why would you do that? Well, because if you win, you're going to win millions of dollars, right? So there's a big payout on that uh, end of it if you get lucky. And if, in terms of a margin for error, the margin for error there is actually pretty great for most people because they can afford to lose a dollar, okay? But if you increase those stakes and uh, by say 10,000 or maybe even 100,000, how many of you would pay $10,000 for a lottery ticket with a, with a chance of, uh, you know, fairly significant chance, odds are you're gonna lose that money. Um, so then all of a sudden you become a, a little bit more risk averse there in terms of the chances that you're willing uh, willing to take. So um, certainly when the retention decision comes into play and you look at the markets and what the markets are willing uh, to pay you, um, you're thinking, uh, you know, what's the odds this is going to work out and be profitable? And uh, on the other side, if it's not profitable, how big is the hit going to be and how, uh, how much can I actually absorb that? So, um, so all of those are going to come into play there as you work your way through this. Oops, sorry. So this is slow to react, Elliot. <laughs> um, and then as Elliot alluded to, we've had a lot of stuff in the marketplace here uh, lately, in particular, uh, pretty volatile uh, uh, weather situations where we've had floods to deal with um, that have affected the markets and affected uh, what's going on uh, in, in agricultural in general. Um, and then uh, uh, COVID-19, uh, really goes without saying all the impacts that that's had on us. And then uh, certainly with the um, cattle, we've had a couple of things going on uh, with the uh, packing plants uh, being up and running affected by the COVID-19. And before that, we had kind of a precursor to what that looked like when we had the Holcomb uh, plant fire down in Kansas that uh, knocked out 6% of our uh, processing capacity. And then you throw in all of the volatility in terms of the trade and what's going on with China in particular, whether they're buying our products or not. And so we've had a lot of volatility when it comes to the marketplace for people to, I guess, think about and process and, and uh, uh, certainly look and, and, and say, what, uh, what do I need to manage here and what can I do to manage this in particular? So this is just a graph of some of the volatility that happened after the Holcomb fire that we saw down in Kansas. And, uh, you know, so the fire occurs, we had an extreme, as I said, it took out 6% of our processing capacity, extreme drop in the marketplace, the volatility, and then we start to uh, climb back out of that. So if, if you anticipated that and locked in uh, some prices and didn't have to be affected by this, of course, you look like a hero. 
but who anticipates a black swan event uh, like that? And then uh, more recently, we had the COVID-19 impact come into play uh, in March when that hit, and we saw the huge drop uh, there, certainly when we uh, started having some capacity taken offline um, and uh, affecting our cattle prices. And slowly we're climbing back out of that, back into that uh, trading range in that 140 to 147 uh, range. So uh, both of those are pretty uh, significant events, black swan events that come in. And those are the types of events that you uh, want to worry about whether or not you, could, you uh, have protection in place to absorb something like that or to protect yourself from that happening. Um, so what is unusual or rare then as you look at that? Uh, certainly the last couple of years are pretty extreme, um, but this is some data for uh, basically from 1990 to 2019. So we're looking at roughly 30 years worth of data here. And you compare October to March and what you expect to have happen there, 60% of the time the price is higher in March and, and uh, Elliot already alluded to that, um, but it's not absolute obviously. So. Uh, the largest dip price difference in terms of it going down was $30 uh, back in the 2016 year. Um, and the largest increase was $62 uh, in 2014. We'll see that play out in some of the, some of the data that we show you here and talk about. 2019, it actually went down uh, $11. But look at some of the recent uh, largest losses here, uh, you know, of greater than $10. Um, look at all those years that... Uh, uh, crop up there in terms of the last uh, dozen years or so. Uh, <clears throat> so I always like to look at, uh, you know, when you're making decisions, what, do, what does the profit look like, potential profit, and what do you know in that profit equation, and what do you don't know in that profit equation? So if we look at the top line here and we say, how do I calculate profit of retaining these calves? Well, it's what is the ending value going to be uh, compared to that beginning value that I'm giving up when I choose to retain them. And then of course the cost uh, to carry them through that uh, production period. And don't forget about the death loss. Uh, now some of the numbers I show you here, I'm gonna include the death loss in the overall cost, but certainly uh, if we lose an animal or two, it's gonna drive up our cost per hundred weight in terms of what we actually produce there uh, quite a bit. So if you look at that profit equation, what, what's, what do you know? Well, hopefully you know what those animals are worth at the beginning of that production period, but that's about all you know with any uh, sort of large degree of certainty. Um, the other things are all unknown, and of course, there's different pieces of that that you can control uh, some of that unknown and uncertainty and make it, make it uh, a little bit more certain, um, but some pieces are a little bit harder to control. Um, so two things that you uh, can look at controlling really uh, is that ending weight and that feed cost. And Elliot alluded to that earlier in terms of um, what kind of production system you put them through and how much you push them. Uh, so you can uh, push them harder, feed them more, up that feed cost on a daily basis uh, to those animals and push them to a higher ending weight. And of course, if you're gonna retain calves, you wanna make sure that you're working with a nutritionist and you have that figured out, right? That you have the right ration to uh, get a, the right weight gains and so on and mitigate some of that risk. Uh, so you can get at what that cost of production is. As Elliot had listed earlier, that's one of the knowns you wanna to get to. Um, and that can vary from uh, uh, place to place because the other operating costs, that daily uh, yardage cost, the uh, interest costs, it's associated in overhead. Some of these other daily, what we might look at as daily fixed costs uh, associated with the production. Um, those can, it can vary quite a bit from operation to operation as you look at that overall cost. But the big one here that we're really talking about today is that ending price, um, because that's, uh, can, as we just talked about, you, that can, the floor can drop out of that pretty quick. Uh, so sometimes people feel like they can't control that uh, very much. And hopefully uh, with the stuff that we talk about today, uh, you start to feel like not only uh, should you control it, but there is some things that you can do uh, to control that ending price, at least uh, uh, mitigate the possibility that it drops out from under you. So this is uh, just an example. Um, this is some work that was done here at UNL. Uh, the production numbers came uh, from two years worth of studies uh, over in the animal science department and Terry Kloffenstein led an article in the 2020 Nebraska Beef Report reporting those numbers. Um, and then we have a report coming out in 2021 that the uh, undergrad uh, helped us with, uh, Michael Miracle, in which we took the uh, 
Klopfenstein production data and overlaid 18 years worth of price data uh, to see which system was more profitable. Um, so essentially think of yourself back in, at the end of October making a retention decision. And if you choose not to retain the calves, you can just sell them as weaned calves. And in this particular data, the average uh, starting weight was 527 and you would just get that October price, whatever that happened to be uh, for those animals at that time if you sold them. So that's a certainty, that's that beginning value that you know uh, what they're worth uh, when you make the reten retention decision. If you do choose to feed them then, they looked at a slow growth pattern, that 0.8 average daily gain um, that Elliot showed you earlier. Um, that cost on a per head basis was $153 uh, per head, and that pushed them out to 627, so a 100 pound weight gain. It turned out that that would be about $1.53 uh, a pound in terms of that cost of gain, so pretty high. Um, and that took them to the end of February at that weight. Or they could push them a little harder, uh, two pounds a day. And the difference between these, these calves were out on corn stalks and they were be, being supplemented with distiller's grains. And uh, the slow growth was uh, 1.3 pounds a day and the uh, high growth was at six pounds a day. Uh, so that's a difference the, of about $50 a head here that you see in the feed costs. And these are averages. We actually, in the Miracle Report, we looked at how those uh, costs would have varied from year to year based off of what distiller's grains were costing. Um, and it was pretty minor as far as the play goes here, but obviously it scales. Um, so for example, this one ranged from 140 to 170 on the slow growth. Uh, the fast growth ranged from 170 to 270, basically, in terms of the uh, range of the cost there. But the fast growth would push them up near 800 pounds. Um, <clears throat> and what we looked at when we overlaid February prices for 600 to 650 pound calves, 750 to 800 pound calves, these are uh, Nebraska auction prices, and compared that to the 500 to 550 pound October price. Um, essentially, the slow growth was not very profitable in terms of selling it in February. Uh, only about a third of the times was it profitable. On average, you lost about $24 a head. Um, but of those six years that you made money, the most you made was about $126 per head. This is all per head. And then uh, of the 12 years you lost, the worst you lost was almost $200 a head. Um, Pushing them made you more money for this time frame in terms of through February, and 10 out of 18 years it paid, and the highest was 211. Uh, of the eight years you lost money, the worst was you lost $80, and on average you made money here at $45 a head. Now I should mention that the, the if you read the reports, we actually these were carried out to grass, and as you in general as you retain animals, your likelihood of making money goes up, but your risk goes up with it. Um, in both of these cases, if you carry them on into grass, at least through July, uh, you go up to where you're making money 16 out of the 18 years. Um, but the uh, worst case scenario uh, goes to like a negative $340 a head, and the best case scenario uh, bounces up to where you're making about $600 a head uh, in a very good situation. So, uh, so you take on more risk, you make more money as you retain them. Um, and it does make a difference in terms of what your cost goes into that and when you plan uh, to sell them. Of course, the slow growth uh, gain better on the grass than these here that are uh, quite a bit heavier when they go out to grass. But this is nice to look at it just in terms of data over 18 years, but in terms of making decisions, you're making decisions on an annual basis. Uh, so you're gonna be looking at, uh, for, for this fall, for example, you're gonna be looking at your October price on your wean calves and whatever they weigh, and you're gonna say, what are those worth? Uh, so you need to couple that with the price. So it, let's just say you're looking at 170 for your October price. That might be a little high. We're looking at 160 to 170 uh, right now for five weight calves in Nebraska. So, uh, you know, I'll be optimistic here. Let's just say 170 is your price. Well, that becomes a known then, and that's a and your cost uh, part of that equation here in terms of your profit. Um, that's that's a cost, and that's going to couple with this cost of gain um, here as you put on the weight. Um, and then that's gonna, you can use those numbers then to calculate what it actually break even price you need in February. So I did that for these two scenarios. And if we add $153 uh, to this value of the calf uh, when we retain it, and we look at what we have here uh, for the overall um, uh, money that we have wrapped up in there and that 627 pound calf, we'd need 167 in the spring in February at the end of February uh, in order to break even on those calves. And the uh, fast uh, growth, 
Um, I mentioned this was a hundred weight, whatever you want to look at there in terms of that uh, cost of gain. This one here is quite a bit less cost of gain because we're putting on about 250 pounds here. Uh, so this cost of gain is quite a bit less. And uh, that February break-even price goes to uh, 140. Um, so these are the type of calculations you'd make in terms of what you need from the market uh, price out there. And of course, these are equivalent to what uh, Elliot was talking earlier with that value of gain compared to the cost of gain. The mistake some producers make is they compare this $78 to this 140 and say, well, yeah, I can make money with them. Uh, but that's not true because that value of gain is actually taking into account this beginning price right here, what those animals are worth when you start with it. So this break-even price, don't forget, is a weighted average. It's not just this value of gain. It's a weighted average of, of roughly $79 a hundred weight for that 250 pounds you're putting on and $170 a hundred weight for that 527 pounds that you started with. Um, so when you have this uh, keep putting on weight at this cost to gain, it is bringing down your uh, break even price um, that you have there. Um, but it's, it, this stuff here is fixed, right? So it's not bringing it down as fast as you think um, is the main point. So you gotta pay attention to that when you're making these decisions. So <clears throat> of course, the other thing is you'd wanna look forward to that expected price at the end. And uh, I just threw out 160 here. And if that was your expected price at the end, you might look at this fast growth situation and say, well, yeah, I, I think I can make money there. But the same token, when you see some of these black swan events that we have, and maybe your financial situation is such um, that you, uh, that even then you wanna protect that, right? So $20, hundred weight uh, gap there might look good to you, might make you wanna do that, but you still uh, may have a very good reason to put some price protection in place to make sure you don't lose money on that. Cause you, because you are uh, taking quite a bit of chance and may have quite a few dollars on the line here in terms of foregoing these uh, fall sales. Um, the top one, maybe it's a no brainer. Now this is quite a bit uh, different weight difference here. Uh, so maybe you get a little bit more than 160 for those there, but that's a little bit more of a, of a slim margin. And maybe you don't want to take uh, that chance right there because uh, financially you just, you just can't afford it. Okay, <clears throat> so Elliot mentioned uh, LRP, which is uh, livestock risk protection. So the question comes in, how do you wanna, how can you protect that price then? Um, and livestock risk protection insurance is one of the tools that's out there. It's probably, uh, it's, it's underutilized to say the least, and, and especially in Nebraska. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, nationally, they're trying to get more people to participate in this program and, and certainly Nebraska producer, more Nebraska producers could benefit from this than are currently uh, participating in it. Um, it, is avail it is an insurance product, so it's available through uh, the risk management agency and their website is rma.usda.gov and everything I show you here today, numbers wise, as far as this goes, I, I got from their website and it's open to the public. It is a single peril price protection insurance policy. It does not cover sickness, death, feed cost, or performance of the animals or any of that stuff. If you're worried about death loss and you want to insure them uh, against death loss, you need to get that through a private insurer. Um, this is just price. Uh, for cattle, there's different categories of it. In the feeder cattle, um, it depends on whether you're talking cattle below 600 pounds or between 600 and 900 pounds. They classify those as either weight one or weight two cattle. And, uh, and then they also break the steers and heifers up. This is all tied to the CME feeder cattle price index, which is, as far as these classification goes, is steers weight two. So if you look at LRP steers weight two price, it's, it matches that CME uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange feeder cattle price index. And then they make adjustments of 10%, uh, they add 10% to that price if you go to the lower weight class and they subtract 10% from that price if you go from steers to heifers. But it's all adjusted. Steers weight two are matched up with that feeder cattle price index. LRP is also available for fed cattle, which is anything over 900 pounds. Completely honest with you, hardly anybody buys it in Nebraska. Of the uh, LRP uh, products sold in Nebraska, and they sell it for swine and for sheep also, 93% of what's sold in Nebraska is sold for feeder cattle. Um, and I think about 5% go to swine and then the uh, small remainder go to fed cattle. 
so it is purchased through a livestock insurance agent. A lot of crop insurance agents are also licensed to sell livestock insurance. So you want to check with them, uh, but not everybody is. RMA on their website, if you don't know anybody, you can go on there and do a search and find somebody that sells it. There's two steps to it. The first step is free. It's an application process and that just matches you to an agent that you plan to buy the coverage from. The second step actually puts the coverage in place and that's called a specific coverage endorsement. This is sold on a per head basis and Elliot's gonna talk a little bit later about some of the other CME tools that are available that are sold in, in contracts of specific weight sizes. So you would decide how many head you wanna insure at what weight and then essentially you'd get the coverage uh, for uh, the price on whatever that, those pounds turn out to be. Um, big changes, this had came out in 2003 for cattle, hadn't changed at all until last summer and they bumped up some subsidies and made some changes to uh, when it's available and whatnot. And then this last year, just recently, they made two more significant changes. All these changes are for the good for cattle producers and livestock producers in general. The big one, or one of the big ones, is they moved the premium due date to the end of the endorsement period. You used to have to pay up front for this. Now it's settled at the end, which is, a, which is really nice because you can just wait and see how it turns out. And if you end up having to owe them money for the premium, that means prices were good, right? And you didn't collect on the insurance. Um, and also the subsidies have increased significantly. Uh, from its inception until last summer, the subsidies were set at 13% across the board. Last summer, they bumped them up to between 20 and 35%. This uh, summer, they bumped up uh, anything above 90%. They bumped that up another five percentage points. So now the lowest subsidy you can get on this is 25%. The highest subsidy is 35%. So it's much heavier subsidized than it has been in the past. This is how it's actually been used in Nebraska. Pretty limited, uh, as I mentioned. On average, we have about 158 policies that people pay premiums on, which means they've taken out a specific coverage endorsement. Remember, you don't have to do that uh, if you've actually applied. Applied just matches you up to it, so they keep track of that too. But this is what I look at, how many people paid premiums. It's varied quite a bit, uh, from 69 up to 313. Most policies don't cover a lot of head. 119 is the average. Um, and then uh, 38%, a little over a third of them have been indemnified, indemnified but as um, Elliot alluded to, sometimes prices go up, in which case uh, in that one year in particular, uh, back in the 2000, I think it's listed as 2014, but it was 2013 to 14, uh, hardly anything was paid out. Uh, other years, the, uh, almost all the policies or close to 90% were, were indemnified. Producer loss ratio uh, on average is a 0.81, which means that for every dollar collected from the producers, it's paid out 81 cents. That's with the 13% subsidy because that's what was in place for these years. I refigured that with a 25% subsidy and it's up close to a dollar, uh, which would be a dollar for dollar um, uh, payback. Um, just so you know, this uh, last year, we actually had an average subsidy level of 22%. Uh, that's not in this data because that's uh, still being, those policies are still being worked out. And then, um, oops, there we go. So then this is some data just basically looking at the last five years of expected payout and net effect, okay? And there was really only one year in here where you're, there was no indemnity and this would have been from middle of 2015 to the middle of 2016. Those policies, this was an, uh, an example for steers weight two, uh, policy taken out at the end of October, uh, and then uh, at the very end of uh, January, early February, this is what it would have uh, paid back out. Um, <clears throat> but in effect, you would have just had the indemnity or uh, had the premium on there, uh, but three out of the other five years, you actually netted out a positive on it. And on average, it was 365. That's under the old subsidy level. If you put the new subsidy levels in place, it's about 425, 100 weight. I find these kind of confusing because for example, this is the worst uh, year as you have here, but prices actually went up in that uh, realm. Um, so I like to look at how it actually affect the change. This was the actual change in that CME index over that time. So anything in parentheses, right, was uh, what happened to that CME index as it went through there. Uh, you know, only one year did it go up. And this is the net change with LRP. So the big one is right here where this went down 22 bucks 
With LRP in place, you only had to suffer about a $7 loss in that expectation. Um, and in this case where it went up 14, you got to participate in $11 of that upside. So LRP works in the sense that if it goes down, it protects you. If it goes up, you participate in it and you're just out that premium for the insurance. Graphically, if you like to look at that, that's what this looks like. So the dotted line would be break even. Bad years in red, this uh, basically mitigates that loss. In good years, you're out the premium, so you don't get to participate in the full gain. Uh, but this is the last five years, and if you calculate this out, basically right here, you got to participate in about three quarters of that good year. And if you average all of this protection here, it basically protected you uh, against a little over half of the potential losses that you could have incurred. Um, so that's one way to go in and protect that price. Again, that's going to be dictated by your tolerance for risk and ability to withstand losses. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jay. I think uh, as we kind of go through the rest of these other tools that Jay talked a little bit about LRP, I'll go ahead and talk about for maybe larger operations who want to use kind of the CME futures and options. Um, and we'll kind of go through how to calculate some of those prices just just so we're, we're kind of on the same page. Um, this, uh, this past summer, when uh, COVID-19 was happening, got a lot of phone calls and had a lot of conversations about kind of this need to use risk management tools and um, kind of want to just uh, reemphasize that risk management tools work as a prevention and not as a cure for bad market situations. So um, example that I sometimes use is you don't go buy home insurance after your house burns down. You know, you buy home insurance so that, you know, if there is a disaster, it, it protects you. Um, and we can think of these risk management tools in the same way. There's a lot of uncertainty about what price is gonna be. And so we will pay out a premium in order to transfer some of that risk. Um, and I liked what Jay kind of showed that uh, the risk that LRP really does work even, and it helps prevent the really, really lows, but it also allows us to participate in some of the highs that we get. Um, and the difference between that is, you know, the premium that, that we're paying out. Um, there's lots of ways that we can choose to manage risk. One way is that we can, another way that we can choose to manage risk is can be market diversified. So Jay was kind of talking about that. Maybe we choose to add weight on a little bit more. Maybe we re retain some of the animals a little bit longer through summer. Um, we're choosing to participate in a different market at that time. We're not in the wean calf market. We're now in the stalker, the stalker market. And sometimes we can even retain animals all the way to the feedlot. And so in 2016, we went over what is the um, we surveyed cow-calf producers in Nebraska and we said, what type of uh, market diversification are you using and, and what type of pricing tools are you using? And only about 17% of all people, we had about 1,200 responses, 17% um, of those people said that they use any form of price risk protection. So about, yeah, about 20% 20, 20 in total. 20% were said they diversified and about 60% say they don't use anything. They just raise, you know, calves and, the, and they sell them. They don't use any price risk protection. So one thing that um, when we see that cash price, one way that we can break it up is, you know, look at basis and, and the futures price. Sometimes you hear people talk about basis. Basis is essentially cash minus futures. And so, we really know that when we're hedging or we're taking a position in the, at the CME, essentially what we're doing there is we're locking in a price subject to what we call basis risk. Um, and when we're calculating what we think what a bait or what a hedge might look like for us, we generally have to estimate what basis is gonna be. And we can do that in a normal number of ways such as uh, using some of the historical basis patterns that we've seen. Um, important contrast there is that um, we don't know essentially what basis is going to do, 
but we know that basis is more predictable than the cash price. And we know that from not only Nebraska over, you know, 30, 40 years, but also in other parts of, this state, of the United States. So I just wanted to kind of give you an example of what this hedge would look like. Sometimes we hear people saying, oh, we need to hedge. Um, and so let's just assume that we have 66 head of steers. The reason why we're using 66 head is because that's one full contract within the CME for feeder cattle. Um, let's just say in July, we're gonna sell one September 20 contract. Um, and that was gonna be trading at uh, 140 at that time. Um, and then we have an expected basis of 20, so we can back calculate what our cash price is going to be, cat futures price plus the basis 160. So pretty close to what you know Jay was talking about there. Um, then we go through time. That's in July. We observe July. We observe August, and in September, we do what's called offsetting. We don't actually want to deliver cattle. We want to sell them in the cash market. So then we offset that contract by buying back one September contract. In this case, the, uh, the futures price went down. We were in kind of a decreasing market at that time. So um, we go back, um, we've, we've bought this oh, decrease in the market. We, the cash market is now at 140. Hey, we were, we were perfect predicting our basis was actually 20. So what, what was our actual net price? Well, we take what we sold in the cash market, which was 140 plus our gains or losses in the futures market. So we actually had $20 gain, what we bought it for minus what we sold it for. You know, it's $20 gain. So what is our actual net price? It's 160. And so that really, you know, essentially locks in our price. We locked in a 140 plus our basis was 160 cash. At the end, we actually predicted basis correctly. So that price was 160 that we received. Minus, you know, what we're gonna pay for any trading costs. So that's a that's just a straight hedge. It's a flat price guaranteed all the time. So similar to LRP, um, we can, you know, take out a put on the, um, through the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And it's kind of the same thing, right? So we can say we want to have indemnity basically paid out if the ending price is below our expected price. So same thing, we buy, we buy this put in July, we have to pay $5 and we're still at expected 20 basis. The feeder cattle contract ended up dropping $20. Um, and since that, that ending price was below, we chose to exercise it and we go through that whole same thing, right? What our cash price was, plus and gains and losses in the futures market. And then right down here, we have what we paid for that, that put cost, which was $5 per hundred weight. And so our ended up being 155 per hundred weight. So these are just two examples of, you know, you can do this for any, you know, any trading contract month and for a variety of strategies. Um, and so what I like to show people is that, you know, these, as we're making these decisions, it really depends on what that ending futures price is going to be, whether that situation was a, you know, a profitable situation or not. So right here on this red line, this is the futures price, right? We locked it in at 160. And we're guaranteed, no matter what this ending futures price is, is guaranteed to be 160, our, our essentially our, our price, which is 140 locked in plus our basis. And then notice cash here, right? If we were just to sell cash, if we sold cash at 140, right, we get 140. But when we're talking about risk protection, often what we're talking about is this left side between 140 the ending futures prices of 120 and 140. You know, it helps us protect that, that downside. This uh, green line is the put. So the difference between this blue line and the green line is, what, is that's what we paid to transfer that risk. So in order to set this floor right here, 
on this green line, that's that's our minimum sell price. And so we have to, we paid to tran transfer that risk. Hopefully this you know graphically illustrates that um, there are available risk management tools out there to use. And they oftentimes they don't cost all that much. And if we start, you know, to think about it in terms of, you know, we're not taking out a insurance product because we want to make, we want it to pay out on us. We don't, we don't want the futures prices to drop or we don't want the cash price to drop because then, you know, we're potentially losing a lot of money. What we want to do is make sure that if there are those, you know, huge situations that drop that affect the, the market that, that we're prepared and, and we're basically ranching long-term. One, and kind of in closing, in closing, one thing that I like to think about is just try to, try to incorporate and think about uh, risk management more like, a, more like our breeding decisions. You know, we make that breeding decision maybe two or three years before we actually see the calf crop that comes out of it and the performance out of that. Um, and we make the best decisions that we can when we are retaining an animal. And that's the information that we have at that point. And yeah, we can make, we can update our decision two or three years later as we see the calf crop, but we don't go back and say, oh man, I wish I would have known this, I wouldn't have done that. And we, that can be the same thing for risk management. We have the information, the best information that we have at the time. We make a risk management decision. Maybe the market goes one way, maybe it goes the other, but it didn't necessarily mean that our previous, our original decision was, was incorrect because we had, we were using all the information that we had. Um, and so just kind of, there's a tendency to say, I made a wrong decision just because the feedback is just so quick. I mean, we know within a month or two months, whether that was a, you know, a quote, good decision or a bad decision. Um, and with that, I think uh, Jay and I are welcome to answer any questions. We'll turn it back to you, TL. All right, thanks guys. Again, if you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. Um, I guess one question I'd have for either one of you, and um, this might just be repeating what you've said to us in the presentation, but maybe it bears repeating. Um, for a producer that hasn't used risk management, that uh, maybe just kind of crosses their eyes looking at all those numbers and stuff and it seems overwhelming. If you had, to, what, what would you say to them to try to convince them, what, why is risk management a good deal? I mean, again, this is probably repeating what you're talking about, but just reiterating why, why, why look into these risk management strategies. You want me to go first, Elliot? <laughs> Well, I, you know, the, when they're making the decision, in particular with this, with the retention decision, they're making a decision based off of their expectations of what prices are going to look like and what their production is going to look like. And again, it gets back to their uh, ability or willingness to tolerate risk. Um, so, so as Elliot said, you know, when you look back and you say, oh, I made a bad, I shouldn't have done this or I should have did that. Uh, you know, that's also taken in the context of, of how it actually affects you financially. And so if you look at a situation where you need, uh, say, uh, you need to get 155, 100 weight out of these calves for this to work, uh, and you can put protection in place to make sure that happens, um, then that makes that uh, decision at least a lot more uh, palatable in terms of a worst case scenario, and you still have the upside potential to make a profit. Um, on the other hand, if you're just looking at sheer numbers and you don't have a clear handle on what the odds are or what the magnitude of some losses might be if things go south on you, um, it can put you out of business. So it's more than just saying, oh, I should have did this, or I should have did that. It could be a pretty massive thing. Um, and again, these are, you know, on a year-to-year -year basis, you might think that you have a good uh, ability to tolerate a loss, but th these things add up in a hurry and you put two or three years in a row that are bad for one reason or another. You can, uh, you know, you can uh, hold your, you can basically put your uh, business in, in jeopardy pretty quickly. 
Yeah, I saw that uh, Randy asked a question about when do you have to purchase LRP. Um, so each day a quote comes out for LRP and that's available through RMA and you pretty much have till the end of trading um, on one day till the beginning of trading the next day in order to contact and get the paperwork ready and contact your um, basically whoever your agent is going to be to put that in. Once trading opens again um, at Chicago Mercantile Exchange, those quotes are now invalid. Um, and the reason why is because those quotes are based upon what happens in trading during a certain day. And so you pretty much have, you know, 12 hours, 12 to, you know, basically 12 hours to get, make that decision. Um, and so when we're talking about, you know, when to make that decision, oftentimes it comes down to what are the prices that you need to be able to see in order to lock in? Jay mentioned maybe a 155 and maybe your production is at, you know, your cost of gain or your, your production, your break evens at 150. So your trigger is then going to be when I see a price that's $5 over my break even, I'm going to lock in, I'm going to lock in a price. And so you're looking for certain market signals. And so, okay, it locked in. I've already made the decision ahead of time that when I see a price that's five over, I'm going to use LRP. And so you see that price, then you contact your, your crop insurance agent, and then you just put to bed your marketing and pretty much all your productions finished. And so it's really having that plan ahead of time, knowing your numbers. Um, and when you know your numbers, you kind of know when to make decisions. Um, if you're just looking at the day, like the markets every day, and today it's 155 and tomorrow's 160 and it's, you know, it's hard to make those decisions with a clear head. Yeah, just to add uh, to that process, um, A, it just got easier because you used to have to actually get the money to your livestock insurance agent right up front and you don't have to do that anymore. But I mentioned the application process. And if you don't have a relationship, if you haven't filled out an LRP application and, and established a relationship with a livestock insurance agent and you're thinking of using LRP, you really should do that. It's actually a very small percentage of policies that people actually take out coverage on. I mean, it's like 5% or something like that. It's really a small, so there, you know, that um, number I gave for the, uh, you know, say a hundred policies are sold in the state of Nebraska. There might be 2000 uh, that are in place because people have established that relationship. So when you call up your livestock insurance agent, you want to only be putting that uh, specific coverage endorsement in place. You don't want to have to fill out the paperwork to actually apply to be their client. Um, so get that in place first, and then it, everything goes smoother from there. You know how to, how to call, when to call, and uh, get that stuff in order. And I don't know if uh, uh, Randy was also talking about timing of it, but the shortest you can buy on LRP is essentially a three-month policy. It's 13 weeks, uh, three months, and then it, they go up from there up to a year. Um, but basically, they go by months in the end. They're listed as weeks. But <laughs> All right. Uh, do we have any more questions for Elliot or Jay? T.O., I'll just, I'll just mention that Jay and myself recognize that it can be kind of intimidating to look at these numbers and to look at the market. And that's kind of what, you know, what we do. And so we're more than willing to, um, you know, talk about this and with producers if they want to run by some numbers or just kind of give, give our thoughts on that. And so more than happy to kind of to do that. Good to hear. Yes. <laughs> well, um, Thank you, Elliot and Jay, and thank you everyone for joining us today. A recording of this webinar will be posted at farm.unl.edu, where you can also register for other upcoming webinars. And as a reminder, please check farm.unl.edu for a schedule of more webinars in this series focusing on farm and ranch management issues relevant to Nebraskans. 
this has been a special Nebraska Farmcast presentation of Extension Farm and Ranch Management in the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To view or listen to more archived webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications to guide your decision-making, visit farm.unl.edu.